And then I realized much later on that many of my friends in the university were actually, quote, refugees that had left Suez or Bursaid and had come to live and continue their life in Alexandria. It was a period of turmoil and uncertainty, and uh, I saw that, and it kind of has affected my outlook on life. I grew up in the 60s, so we were very careful, especially in the 60s, of what we spoke and what we said. Things loosened up later on, they then became clamped, so... So the 2011 revolution gave a lot of hope I did not, in retrospect, have the training to do research from my undergraduates. Lebanon is a much more open society compared to Egypt. Uh, Egypt is an old country also. It has, it has a lot of heritage. Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. This is a bonus episode in the Middle East segment. This is episode 12. In the previous episode, episode 11, you heard Fadil Adib, professor at MIT, describing his upbringing in Lebanon. In today's episode, we talk to another guest who grew up in a nearby country, Egypt. But today's guest also spent a few years in Lebanon. So, of course, you'll hear some elements common to the previous episode 11. Oh, and our guest in today's episode is also a history buff, having himself grown up in a family filled with renowned academics and historians on both his mother's and father's sides. None of them in STEM, though. So a lot of Egyptian and Middle East history is woven into today's conversation. I'm delighted to welcome Amr El-Abadi to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. Amr is a professor of computer science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, also known as UCSB. He is well decorated for his research contributions over the years and decades. He is an ACM fellow, an IEEE fellow, a AAAS fellow. His research areas include contributions to fault-tolerant distributed systems and databases with applications in cloud, social media, biology, networks, digital libraries, security, and many other areas. Amr El-Abadi is a leader in the databases community. He's been journal editor for several leading journals, including the VLDB Journal and IEEE Transactions on Computers. He served as program chair for multiple top database and distributed systems conferences, and he's been a board member of the VLDB Endowment. Previously, before becoming a professor at UCSB, uh, Amr finished his PhD from Cornell University in Computer Science in 1987. He was at Cornell from 81 to 87. 
Um, and he immigrated to the U.S. in around 1981 for his Ph.D., uh, though he became a citizen only recently in 2016, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, in 1980, Amr received his bachelor's degree from Alexandria University in Egypt, which is where he spent most of his childhood. He's been in a few countries. He was born in England in the late 1950s uh, and moved as an infant to Egypt. He's also spent about three years in Lebanon and then several years on and off visiting there. And we'll talk about all those countries uh, in today's conversation. Welcome, Amr, to the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast, and thank you for being willing to share your story and your journey and your thoughts with us. Thank you for inviting me. So you were born in England in the late 1950s and then moved to Egypt as an infant. Uh, you spent most of your childhood in Egypt in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, what are some of your earliest childhood uh, memories at home and uh, being interested in science and math? Definitely don't have any recollections of my uh stay in England. I was, uh, my parents were studying in Cambridge and I was born there and uh, brought back to Egypt uh, uh, in 1959. So I was barely 10 months old. Uh, I'm told that uh, when my parents uh, took me, uh, took me back from Cambridge to Egypt, uh, they, they basically took the train through Paris and stopped at the Louvre Museum my, uh, and uh, visited the Egyptian section. And when I was crying uh, for food, they felt comfortable going next to the Egyptian uh, ruins in the Louvre and feeding me there. Uh, then we, I'm told we, cross, we went to Marseille and took the boat across uh, to, to Alexandria. And this is where I grew up. So I, I'm, I'm really an Alexandrian who grew up in Alexandria. I only got to really know Cairo much later on. And we can talk about that when I went as an education abroad director in Cairo. Mm -hmm. uh, so I grew up in Alexandria. Alexandria uh, in the 60s, especially in the 60s, early 70s, uh, was a, still had remnants of its older cosmopolitan environment. So we, we still, there was still, uh, there was still a large uh, Greek community, a large Italian community. Uh, other communities had, had left earlier, especially the Jewish community. Uh, but uh, there were still remnants of many of these communities. So my, uh, my parents were both academics. Uh, so my father uh, was a professor of uh, history, archaeology, Greco-Roman history in particular. And my mother was a professor of English literature, especially Shakespearean. Uh, I do come from a family on both sides that were fairly academic. So my grandfather on my father's side was the first uh, dean of the College of Arts, Letters and Science, Letters, uh, Humanities, actually, in Alexandria University, which was founded in 1942. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandfather on my mother's side uh, was, a, was a, as a part-time, but later this was his hobby and passion, was a poet. And uh, he did do a fair amount of... Uh, write a lot of poetry also. So I remember as a child growing up and my grandfather 
would create poetry and read it to us about our daily activities. And that was very, very fulfilling. Uh, He had uh, gone to Germany in the 20s to get a PhD in economics and uh, met his wife. So my grandmother was German and uh, she moved to Alexandria. And so I grew up in this environment that was fairly diverse within the family and the city itself. And, and very academically excellent and very academically charged. Right? I think, as you mentioned, your, your father, Mustafa El Abadi, is a prominent historian credited with um, revival of the, the ancient Library of Alexandria project yes, that was adopted yes. by UNESCO. And then your grandfather, Abdul Hamid El Abadi, was a historian. And as you mentioned, the founding dean of the Faculty of Arts at the University of Alexandria. How was it like growing up in this academically charged family? Were you expected to excel in academics from a very young age? Probably yes, Uh, although uh, I wasn't that outstanding, especially in my elementary school years. I mean, I had, I had, and it was always problematic for me because often the teacher, the history teacher or the geography teacher would have been my father's student and I would feel embarrassed and it was all, but eventually I started to be better academically during my uh, senior my senior years. Mm. So there were ex- high expectations from you. But it was moderate, I have to say. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't feel the pressure too much. The environment in Egypt uh, is, is that we have this uh, final year exam. It's mm. in Arabic, it's called Sanoyam. So it's like the baccalaureate or at the very end. Mm. And it's very intense. Mm. And so everybody's competing and you have to get high grades to enter the university. Mm. And and the middle class environment in which I grew up felt that pressure a lot. Mm. Your interest in science and math, was it organic? Was it slow over the years or was it very evident to you in your early years that, yes, this is this is something I'm really interested in? So I was definitely interested in in research kind of or exploring things, whether it would be science or humanities, especially history, because of the environment I grew up in. I really and until now, I have a passion for for history Mm. and especially Egyptian history is so rich and multifaceted and intersects with both Asia Africa and Europe. So between all, it's we really feel this mixture. And I think I always felt a passion for it. But it was academia that kind of attracted me. I saw the life. My father tra- traveled a lot and would take us on trips from when we were very young. One of my first recollections that things I still remember, I was probably five or six, is we went to the south. Abu Simbel is a famous temple Mm. And uh, the high dam was going to be built in Egypt. This was in the early 60s, and uh, there was a big movement uh, to to nationalize and to be strong. And so the high dam was going to be built, and it was going to flood many of these, and it did flood many of these temples. Mm. And so the Abu Simbel was going to be moved from its location. And my father really wanted us to see it before it was moved. So we went there. And I remember lying on the big toe of Ramses, mm-hmm. and I was barely covering the toe. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
what point of time did you, I mean, you mentioned that you're interested in history and social science and science, and you really wanted to do research. At what point of time in your high school, or maybe it was later, did you say, okay, you know, maybe I'm going, going to go more towards computer science or sciences? So it was, it started during high school. So I went to a, a public university, a school, uh, Arabic school. So I, my elementary and uh, junior high were in what are called uh, English language schools. So mm. you study English fairly early on and, and you, yeah. So, but for high school, Egyptian public schools at the time were really competitive and the ex, the good ones were really good. And uh, it it had a much more uh, diverse uh, student population than the English school, so it opened me to 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 the culture and a lot of the common, the people that are around in Alexandria. And I had some very good high school uh, teachers, especially in math. I remember him very clearly. Uh, these were schools, by the way, that were only for boys. So we have at the high school, the schools were segregated, yes. uh, male and female. Mm. Uh, so I, so there I felt a passion for math and and I was inspired by this, some of these teachers, math, uh, even uh, uh, physics. I had a very good physics mm. teacher. Mm. And were your parents, given that they were not in science and math, were they accepting of your slightly differing interests? Yeah, that wasn't an issue. Yeah, okay. that was. Uh, was that because generally they just wanted their children to succeed academically, and it didn't really matter what subject it was in? Or yeah, I think that's true. Yes. You also spent three years in, in Lebanon uh, in the late 1960s. Tell us a little bit about why you went to Lebanon and how was your experience there and how was it different from growing up in Egypt? So uh, because my parents uh, were professors in Alexandria University, there was a strong connection between Alexandria University and the Arab University of Beirut, uh, which is an Arab university that uh, catered to mainly uh, diverse uh, students who couldn't go to the private schools in Beirut. And so many of the students, so they, they, they would go, they went there for three years to teach there. And many of the students were uh, actually Palestinians uh, from the West Bank and, uh, and Gaza. Mm. And one of my vivid recollections were from that period was the 67 war where there was a significant war between the arabs and israel basically egypt uh, syria and jordan and israel and at the time the many of the students i remember were uh, were from the west bank and the the war was 5th of june so it was in june and many of the students had come to take the exams and then the war happened and they were cut from their families. Mm. So I remember my parents having them over at our house and just talking and eating together and stuff. So it was a period of turmoil and uncertainty. Mm. 
and uh, I saw that, and it kind of has affected my outlook on life. And uh, Lebanon is a much more open society compared to Egypt. Uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, enjoyment, outdoors activities and things. The nature is so different from Egypt. Egypt is desert, flat, Mm. And everything, any green that you see in, in traditional Egypt, unless you really go far, is is man-made, is mm. fields and stuff. In Lebanon, you have mountains, you have snow. I'd never seen snow before. Mm. Uh, you have rivers, small rivers that are flowing. In Egypt, there's one big river, the Nile, and mm. it dominates kind mm. of. Mm. Uh, so it's a very different type of environment and very diverse, extremely diverse. You meet people of so many different kinds. So in addition to the Palestinians, you have Kurds, you have Armenians, you have a very diverse, you have diversity of Christian sects as well as Muslim sects. So you learn, I, when, you, when I grew up in Egypt, you only think of Muslims as Muslims and you don't think of anything else. It turns out we are Sunnis while there are Shia, in Egypt, I should have mentioned earlier, there are both Christians and Muslims. The majority is Muslim, but there is a significant minority uh, of Coptic uh, Christian uh, Egyptians. It, so you mentioned that the the war that happened in Lebanon while you were there has affected your outlook in life. Uh, can you say a little bit how that has affected your outlook in life? So, I mean, I, I tend to, to understand that there are problems that, there are cataclysmic problems that happen in the world, wars, for example, in particular, and they affect the egg, everyday life of individuals, whether it is to study, whether it's to take even exams becomes a challenge in these circumstances. So one has to understand that there are settings where there are deep challenges that are outside of our control in a way. I also went in, there was another war, the 73. So yeah. uh, my childhood was affected by several of these serious wars. Yes. Serious wars. So in Egypt in 73, I was in high school at the time and the 73 war happened. That uh, was uh, in October, October 6th. Mm. And uh, at the time, all schools were closed. So I was older. I was uh, mm. 16 years old or something. So I, I really remember this. And uh, it was uh, all elementary schools, junior high universities were closed, except for high school. So I remember going to school during the war and you kind of hear what is happening. And it's mm. just every day. The war is far away. It yeah. didn't affect us directly, our yeah. daily life. But it was still Egypt was involved. Mm. was very much involved. Was there a difference in your experience uh, living through the war in Lebanon and living through the war in wars in Egypt? Probably yes. Uh, I was much younger in Lebanon, so my recollections of that is more like the effect on the students and the people that I saw. Mm. While in Egypt, Egypt was involved in the war, was fighting actually, and I knew people who were in the war, who had been killed, etc. So you, it's a much more personal thing. I was there in the middle of it. Mm. Uh, 
did they affect your going your ability to go to school to study did life just go on as normal because it was far from the war so so uh, uh, as i mentioned high schools were not affected so my sister who went to junior high at the time she didn't go to school but mm. i continued to go the 67 war had other effects indirect that i felt later on in my life which was that a lot of the 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 cities on the suez canal had to be evacuated so bursaid suez and ismailia had to be evacuated in the 67 war and they remained evacuated and abandoned until the 70 after 73 so 75 and then i realized much later on that many of my friends in the university were actually quote refugees that had left mm. suez or bursaid and had come to live and continue their life in alexandria Mm. and they have different traditions and stuff so it added something to my life that i had wasn't aware of at the time mm. so you you experienced and as you mentioned you experienced the very multicultural and cosmo cosmopolitan um environment and populace in lebanon and then uh, egypt is uh slight not as not very homogeneous but Egypt has not that many um religions can you contrast your experiences um Uh, observing the different religions uh, interacting with each other in Lebanon and then also in Egypt so on the surface of it things looked beautiful in Lebanon i mean there was diversity and everything and then the civil war started in 75 and uh, we were going in the summers from 71 72 through 75 and then all hell broke loose and later on in the 90s i actually went back to beirut and i saw the destruction and the horror of it and that is something that one worries about and is and we are always afraid of this we love diversity but sometimes if there isn't enough of a balance in how everybody credits the different communities it can cause problems and can cause death and destruction and that's what unfortunately happened for a long time in Lebanon and in Egypt were the relations between the muslims and the coptic christians that you mentioned were they um were they healthy or were, was there friction there so so definitely at the time when i was a student i felt it was it was things were good we had i had some like we would be in a classroom and there was a mixture of Christians and Muslims and you didn't feel any different except when we have so in Egypt in school you have religion classes and then the Christians go to one room and the Muslims go to another room uh things have gotten a lot more tense and problematic in more recent years i think uh, i'm hoping things will stabilize there is a strong minority but it is a big uh community in Egypt and this part of the community it's it's the i mean we are mixed everywhere whether in the south or the north there isn't any geographic reason for so earlier you mentioned the um entrance exam the baccalaureate exam uh, that everyone takes at the end of their high school uh how um how did you prepare for that was there extra coaching classes that you took or other students took on the side or was it just like the school curriculum that everyone studied so there was the school curriculum and most students took what are called private lessons mm-hmm. i 
pride myself not to have taken pri uh, private lessons. I decided I was going to study by myself. I didn't need private lessons. And the, we had the textbooks. The books were available. Uh, it was it was fine. I mean, so I could do it and I did excel and I succeeded in my exams. Mm -hmm. uh, on this period also, I should mention, Egypt, uh, I mean, was it was at the time it was the the non-alignment movement time yeah so there were strong relationships so this was Gamal Abdel Nasser was the leader of Egypt and uh, there was Nero in India and there was Tito in uh, Yugoslavia and all of these we kind of grew up in this kind of environment that was proud of being non-aligned and I think I personally benefited from this non-alignment in that the various powers, so whether it's the Soviet Union or the US or the European, uh, British, French, they had very strong cultural programs in Alexandria, I'm sure in Cairo too, but I felt it because it's a smaller city in Alexandria. So I would go to the Soviet Cultural Center and mm. they had cheap math books. Mm good math, math, Russian math books in English that were being sold for almost, I mean, very cheap, even by Egyptian standards. Mm. And I think that was, was very good. I also would go to the French cultural center and I took very cheap, uh, like, uh, French classes. So I learned French as a result and had French connections and they sent me to France to, to spend some time there. Uh, and so all this, I think, had in retrospect, I think this was one advantage of the Cold War is for countries like Egypt, we had all these superpowers trying to attract us. And as a result, we benefited. There was music, there was theater, good musicians would come and play in Alexandria. It was always on the route. You're listening to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast interview with Amr El Abadi, immigrant from Egypt and now professor of computer science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I want to talk about your choice of going to Alexandria University and also your choice of the major. Uh, is it common for or was it common for students back in those days to choose a university that was close to where they stayed? Or was there like a national competition, I guess, based on the baccalaureate exam? And then also, how do you choose your major? Is it just based on your score in the in the exam, or is it, or is it something else? So, so uh, it is a national competition. So we are ranked across all of Egypt, and I could have gone to any given my grades. I could have gone to any university in Cairo, for example. But like you mentioned, it was very typical to stay with my one's parents and stay in the local school. And frankly, Alexandria University is one of the best universities in Egypt. So there was, I, I don't think it was an issue. That wasn't discussed even. The more significant discussion was whether to go into engineering or medicine. So the top students typically went into medicine and uh, I just 
and I had excellent scores, so I could have gone to medicine. I decided to go to engineering, and that was a big debate, kind of, not within my family, meaning my parents, but with friends or uncles and aunts. Why aren't you going to any, to medicine? You have, this is the right thing. And then when I got into engineering, the first year is what's called preparatory. So we study everything. We study, I did mechanical engineering, uh, sketch drawing, design, chemical engineering. And then Again, there is a competition to go to the various departments, and I decided I wanted to do computer science. It was this really nascent department mm. and discipline. I mean, we are talking about in 76, Alexandria University had a computer science department four years of education. And I remember having discussions with many, again, with family, friends, and elder uncles and aunts discussing why are you going to do computer science? Study a solid discipline like electrical engineering. Now you can do electrical engineering. It's an established. And then if you want later on, do computer science. But uh, it was attractive. And Alexandria had a very interesting department. When was the first computer that you actually used? So... In my first year in computer science, uh, I did use an IBM with punch cards. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if it was a 360, probably. But then after that, we had a PDP-11, and that's the one that I used. So my first language was Fortran, which I used the punch cards on. And then we had BASIC, and I used the PDP-11. I remember sitting on a terminal and working on it. But with the punch cards in my first year, we had to give it in the day before and wait for the response and get out the... And then you have a bug and all that stuff. Mm. Yeah, debugging is very hard with punch cards. Yes. <laughs> Would it take like a day or two to get the results back? So it took a day to get back the results. So we would submit our bunch of cards and then we would get back and something the next day. And the output was that, like that was printed output? Printed output. Uh, and then at what point did you transition? I guess you mentioned PDP-11. Uh, yes, that 11. you transitioned yeah. to using the more traditional? Yeah. So that was when we switched to a more a screen-like uh, environment. Uh, and I think we started, yeah, I'm sure we did basic. It's pretty amazing that there was a computer science department in Alexandria back in 1976 when even many U.S. universities at that year did not have a computer science department. They kind of was rolled into math departments. So that's pretty amazing. Yes, Alexandria had, a, had and still does, I, I claim, has a strong computer science uh, heritage. There were founding members. So I was definitely not the first class even. There are seniors to me, at least two or three, three or four years senior to me who graduated. Before that, it used to be part of uh, electrical engineering. And there were two or three founding members of the department who were very influential. Naima Abu Talib, Yahya Al-Hakim, who had studied in the US and gone back and decided to found this department. Those were the more senior faculty even for me at the time when I joined. Afterwards, there was a more junior cadre of faculty who had also gone to the U.S. 
I mean, I remember a particular professor, Dr. Abdullah, who had gotten his PhD from Stanford and then came back to Alexandria and had a philosophy in how to teach data structures and insisted on doing things where he took a batch of students and said, I will teach them two or three years in a row. Mm -hmm. And it was like he believed in this apprenticeship model where you work with, and those were small classes. So one advantage, very big advantage of computer science at the time was that we were only 30 students. The small class, yes. It was a small class and there was a strong interaction between the professor and the students. It was also, compared to the U.S. today, it was more diverse. We had more women students. What fraction would you favor women? So I think it was maybe 40%, like 16, 16 students were probably women. And I still, when I go back to Egypt, I, I meet some of them. And they were all successful in their careers as engineers and uh, heads of uh, IT departments, uh, etc. Mm. So it was a it was a very good environment to grow up in and uh, flourish in. Yeah. We did a project. We built uh, a Z80, and uh, we took the processor and uh, built the whole architecture, the memory, the RAM. I remember spending hours and hours for our final engineering projects on this. The fraction of women in Egypt, has it stayed at that 40% level in computer science or has it gone down? Okay, I can't be specific about the percentages, but in general, it is more than in the U.S. I've seen this even in conservative Arab countries. So I've taught in, uh, in I've given lectures in the in uh, Qatar, in uh, the Abu Dhabi, in the Emirates, and there there is segregation, but there is a bigger number of female students and even faculty. There are some departments that don't have native Arab professors male professors, but have female professors. Yeah. But why do you think that is? Why do you think there are more women there than in the US or Europe in computer science? That's a good question that I'm sure people have studied this. Uh, I, I, okay, there are multiple reasons probably, but one of them is I think in the US we have a very hacker-oriented, macho attitude towards uh, programming. And I think uh, we we didn't have this at the time, and I doubt it, it exists now. Also, as a career, it was viewed, rightly or wrongly, as compared to other engineering professions, this was actually a reasonable day job for women. Not that I necessarily believe in this, but this is a societal view, so as a result, it was acceptable. And... In Egypt, in general, if you have the good grades, it doesn't matter whether you are a man or a woman. Your parents want you to persist. And I don't think it's even a class issue. It's just if you have the good grades, there is this opportunity. And as you mentioned, many of the classmates that you had, including the women, had very successful careers years yes. later as well. Yes, yes. I want to ask a little bit about your first steps into research. Did you get involved in research while you were at Alexandria? Not really, no. All my memories are of this uh, project that we did, but I didn't get involved in much research. This was a big shock when I came to the U.S. 
So now uh, moving forward a little bit in your timeline, you're nearing the end of your stay, your bachelor's degree at Alexandria. You're thinking, okay, next steps. What options were you considering at that point? So I, uh, I, 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 I was clearly heading towards an academic career, mm-hmm. and uh, I was appointed in my university in Alexandria as a, the first step. In Egypt, it's called a teaching assistant, but it's the first step in the professional career, an academic career. So I was appointed, uh, and I, sta- I taught actually for one year there. Hmm. And you, the expectation, the typical expectation was that you take uh, you take classes and you get your master's degree, and then you travel abroad and get your PhD. Hmm. Now the masters typically took two or three years. And at the time, there was obligatory military service for all males. Mm-hmm. Except there is one loophole if you are a single child, a single son. And I only have a sister. And so I did not have to do military service for one or two years. So as a result, I just, during that first year, I... I wanted to do something more than so I could leave. I, everybody else had to stay and do a master's because they could do it concurrently with their military service. Mm-hmm. So I remember in December of that or November of that year, a cousin of my father visiting us, and he was a professor from North Carolina, NC State, mm-hmm. uh, control theory and uh, optimization. Uh, industrial engineering and and he said why stay here and do a masters why don't you just go to the US and start ex- doing real research and exploring things yeah. so that's changed my attitude and he convinced me I should apply at that time so I did and this teaching assistant that you mentioned was that after you finished the bachelor's degree at Alexandria? Was yes. It? So I spent one year after the bachelor's and then I did one year where I was a teaching assistant. I took some graduate classes in the department for a master's that I never finished. Mm. And I taught uh, some classes as a teaching assistant. Mm. So you, you finished Alexandria in 1980, then you taught uh, from 1980 For one year. And then, yeah. and then you came to the US in 81. Yes. When you applied to the to um, to U.S. universities, did you consider other places nearby, like the European universities or other places at all? No, as I said, it was motivated by this visit of my father's cousin, and so and at the time I wasn't very prepared, so I only applied to four or five universities. I wasn't even sure how it would go at the time. I didn't know hardly anything about the universities in the U.S., so it was a random application set and I was very lucky that out of the four that I applied to only Cornell accepted me and uh, I really credit uh, uh, Professor David Grease who was the the at the time he was the graduate advisor in charge of admissions and he saw something in my application because mm. I didn't have I mean Alexandria University wasn't on the map at the time my grades were good but I mean that was but he saw something, and I really appreciate. I think David played an important role in my move to Cornell.
This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast interview with Amr El Abadi, Professor of Computer Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and immigrant from Egypt. So in 81, you moved from Alexandria, which is a fairly large city, to Ithaca, which is a really small town, and Cornell University. And of course, there's a change in culture, there's a change in country as well, and there's a change in weather. It's much colder in <laughs> Ithaca. What were the hardest things to adapt to in your first year in Ithaca? The weather. <laughs> so definitely, I had no idea what it was like just for have real snow like on the ground during every day. I remember it was like in my first first semester and I look out of the window and we have exams. It was the finals and I look out of the window and there's snow and I like panic. I don't know what to wear. And then, of course, you know, when you go, you dress. I dressed heavily. I wore underwear, heavy underwear, and then I go out. But then when you go to the exam, it's hot over there because the rooms are are heated. And then I was sweating all the time. It was so, yeah, this was probably the most challenging thing. In terms of the environment, I think at the time, again, Cornell was relatively young. I mean, it wasn't an established department, but it was still a smaller department. And the smallness of the department really helped me because there was a diversity of faculty from various places. They were not all just American, white Americans. It was a diverse environment. And the students who were with me, who joined, were also very diverse. There were Indians, there were Brazilians, there were Norwegians, there were Americans. So it, I think it was a very inclusive environment. Uh, and I think many U.S. universities now have lost this because we have grown. There isn't that intimacy and individual care. Like David Grease, I was, I was his TA in the first year, and I remember him. I we were grading uh, P, uh, PLC. That was the language PL one PLC for Cornell. There was a variation on it, and we would. Uh, take the, the 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 exams and the homeworks, and he would invite us to his house to sit all together, and he would get pizza, and we would grade together. So, even though I was coming into a very different environment, I was getting into a very inclusive academic environment, diverse both in terms of the people involved and in terms of the intellectual depth. So it was a very informative years in broadening my horizons to understanding things outside of my Mediterranean setting that I had grown up with. Keeping in touch with your parents back in Egypt, was that hard? The, the telephone uh, calls yes. were very expensive back then. <laughs> yes, telephone calls were very expensive. I still have long letters that my mother would write to me and I would write short letters back. But uh, yes, uh, we hardly spoke on the phone I when... When there were crises in the Middle East, I i mean, and the Middle East, you know, have lots of crises. And I would like to follow up what is happening, like there was the 82 invasion in Lebanon. So I had to get a shortwave radio with an mm. antenna and I would try to listen because I needed to hear from Arabic speaking what was the news. Or even the BBC getting it was not as easy as now. Right. So all that, uh, so I, uh, I felt the need for transmission of information 
and we had I had to struggle with it before the internet mm. and with just local radios that are not exposing you to different opinions. Right. And around the time that you came, there was a lot of tumult in Egypt. There was an assassination around that time. And then there was, as you mentioned, the 82 conflict. Was there a part of you that felt um, that, you know, what am I doing here in this country so far away from my country, I need to kind of go back? Or, or what was your feeling at that time? So Sadat was killed in October 6th again, 20, uh, 1981, exactly yeah. my first quarter, my first semester at Cornell. Yeah. Uh, so frankly, the environment in Egypt that I left was not supportive of political involvement. So I didn't feel I could necessarily do any changes. So I, I, I don't think I had this strong feeling of saying I need to go back. I'd like to support, I love, I wanted to support people or to know the individuals what's happening, but changes were beyond, beyond me in some way. That's probably how I felt at the time. Yeah. And, and your father and mother being academics in Egypt, did their lives change because of these political changes in the 1980s? Uh, so again, uh, it ties in with Lebanon because they were at the time also teaching part-time in Beirut. And uh, during the 82 invasion, I remember being in Ithaca trying to get a hold of them by phone. And then I, and uh, it was one of these, uh, you know, uh, phone system where you have people live in an apartment building and uh, you call the central office at the bottom. And so the, man, the, the, the gatekeeper answers me and I tell him, can you connect me with my parents? And then he tells me, they are in the shelter. Should I call them for you? And I tell him, is it safe to call them from the shelter? I mean, this is a war happening. They were eventually evacuated on a boat back to Egypt. Uh, I think it was a U.S. military boat that took them back to Cyprus and then to Egypt. So definitely these things affect individuals. And this is what I mentioned before, is these wars, they happen, but they often individual affect people a lot. My parents later on, when the in Kuwait, they so Egyptian professors don't make a lot of money in Egypt. So often they go to other Arab countries that have more resources to make up for lost for revenue. So in the late 80s, my parents were in Kuwait. And uh, actually, I visited them in, uh, in 88, 89. Mm. And then later on, the Iraqi invasion happened. Right. At the time, my parents were actually visiting me in the U.S. Mm. But then when they went back, they went back to Alexandria. Luckily, they have a house and everything, but they had all their belongings in Kuwait. And if you recall, uh, Bush, the father, had given an ultimatum uh, that there was a lion in the sand, and that was January 15th. And so in December, it became clear that it would be, there wouldn't be a war in Kuwait until January. So my father decided to go back to Kuwait to get his car and his belongings and some of his belongings. 
So he did the trek and went back to Kuwait. And I have letters from him describing walking around and seeing the soldiers. And when they left, the Iraqi soldiers are saying, what's happening? Are, you, are we going to be killed now? I mean, there was a sense of dread. And then driving back, and he had a Kuwaiti license, and the regulations were you needed an Iraqi license to, since they considered it part of Iraq, and so he had to go to Baghdad and change change the license plates for all this, and travel back through the Sinai to take a boat. I mean, yeah, these things do affect our lives in very tangible ways. Yeah, that sounds like a very dangerous and fraught trek. Yeah, but this is what you do in these circumstances. And you wonder, was a car, was some books and things worth it? Well, for him, it was. And it wasn't a too risky endeavor. It was. It had some risks, but it was a calculated risk and things work out. And this is, I think, typical of human nature. We, yeah, yeah. we look at the situation, we have something we value and we just move on. Kind of relatedly, I want to ask about the freedom that academics have in Egypt and if that has changed much through all these tumultuous events that have happened in Egypt in the 80s and 90s and even leading up to you know just the last few years. Have you seen an erosion um, of the academic freedoms that academics have in Egypt? It fluctuates continuously. Uh, so it depends on the setting, president, the circumstances, there's often laissez-faire, more allowing people to speak and express themselves, and then there's some period of repression. It just goes back and forth. You cannot, and you have to be just, I grew up in the 60s, so we were very careful, especially in the 60s, of what we spoke and what we said. Things loosened up later on, they then became clamped, so... Mm. It's a mix, really. And this is not only academics, but in general, the population. I mean, mm. uh, a lot of the activists are not necessarily academics. They are uh, yeah. lawyers, journalists. Yeah. So in the 60s, you had to be careful of what you said. Could you, if you criticize the government, could you be hauled off to jail? Is that Not so extreme. You have to be careful. <laughs> uh, I, we didn't know what could happen. Okay, let mm. me put it that way. You're listening to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast interview with Amr El Abadi, immigrant from Egypt and now professor of computer science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So I want to come back to your timeline. So you're in Cornell and uh, what was your first taste of research? Uh, did you start working in your current topics, dispute systems, databases right away or did you try a few things and then converge? So, so this was the biggest shock in my academic career was I had been studying all my life, taking exams all my life. And the first year and a half at Cornell were basically preparing for the qualifyings. And the qualifyings take place in January. In, the, in Ithaca, it's snow, it's cold, and you just spent all this time studying. And frankly, I was good at this. But then I finished, I passed the exams, and now they said, well, start doing research. And that was challenging. I had, I did not, in retrospect, have the training to do research 
from my undergraduate uh, or my first two year and a half at Cornell. I think things have changed now to try and make PhD students do more research even while they are preparing for their exams. But at the time, it was really just make sure you get your theory, your systems, your applications, and your what we called at the time numerical analysis. Yeah. And if you pass those four exams, then you are going to be a, a, an official PhD student and yeah. you can continue to work. So I, 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 was, I was lucky at the time I had a class with uh, Dale Skeen, Yes. who was uh, at Cornell at the time. And uh, I did well in his class and he was doing databases. But for me, it was in an interesting distributed way to face commitment of distributed transactions and so and fault tolerance. So I started working with him and uh, that kind of launched me on what became my career. Uh, Dale left... Uh, Cornell after a year of advising me. So he had been there for barely three years. And then he went to IBM, but eventually started startups in the 80s. Yeah. So, the, and he, ha but I still wanted to work on this topic. And Cornell at the time had trouble with or didn't have enough database people, uh, faculty involved in this. So there was another professor, Sam Twig. And he was definitely uh, system distributed systems, theoretical computational distributed systems. And uh, I had good relationships with, with, uh, with Sam. And so I went to him and I told him, I'd like to work with you. And you know, at the time they were just three or four years older than us. So it was, it was a very nice environment, as I said before. There was also Ken Berman who had just joined and actually, if you recall ISIS, there was this dis large district. So I was involved in it, and I can claim that it's called ISIS due to my Egyptian involvement in the project early on. Here, Amr El Abadi is talking of the systems named after the ancient Egyptian gods ISIS and Horus, which were built in Cornell during the 1980s and 1990s. Not at all related to the more recent Middle East terror organization, which came much later and has nothing to do with research. So I went to Sam and I told him, I'd like to work with you. But he said, I don't work on your database uh, replication and all that. I said, so, but he was a very open, he is a very open-minded person and I really owe a lot to him. So he told me, look, you will develop the work and I will advise you, literally. And that's what he did. So he gave you a lot of freedom in doing what you were passionate about. And he was there. But he gave me very good guidance and direction and uh, corrections. I still have, yeah, he would comment on all my papers and everything. And Sounds like you got a, a taste of uh, being a faculty member with your independent research agenda while you were a grad <laughs> graduate student, because you essentially were advising yourself in some sense, but, you know, because the advisor was not really in your area of research. Yeah. But Sam was very knowledgeable, and so that definitely added to my kind of depth in, in that I was able to leverage a lot of the distributed systems into the database uh, research. So nearing the end of your PhD at uh, Cornell in, in around 86 or 87, as you're considering next career options, did you consider going back to Egypt? Um, as you mentioned earlier, that Alexandria University had a lot of faculty who had 
gone back from the U.S. Was that an option you considered or not? Honestly, I don't think it was an option. Uh, I think uh, my parents' generation, many of them studied abroad, like my parents, and went back. The My professors in Alexandria were part of the generation that some of them stayed in the abroad and some of them went back. By the time it reached my generation, there wasn't that strong of a of a pull. Uh, there was there's a strong cultural pull, but from an academic point of view, it felt as though if I want to continue my research and kind of impact, I would need to continue in the West. And uh, my I had married at the time, and my wife is American, and we just uh, thought this was the right thing to do and stay here and apply in the U.S. So you went on the academic job market in 1987. We talk of the academic job market now as being up and down some years. Last year, it was pretty bad for the pandemic, and this year it's kind of coming back up. What was the academic job market like in computer science back in 87? It was at the end of a good trend. So it was going down, but it was still not terrible. Uh, it it got worse in the at the bottom of the 90s and then you had the the bubble and all that in the 90s in the mid 90s where there was an expansion so it was reasonable it wasn't so i applied i got uh, like six interviews i had three offers to pick between so it was it was a reasonable environment it wasn't one of those easy to pick from but it was not bad so um, earlier I mentioned that uh, you became a citizen only just a few years ago, U.S. citizen only a few years ago. Uh, did you have hopes of going back to Egypt? Was that the reason or were there other? Uh, honestly, no. I think it was just I didn't need it. I felt I feel more of a citizen of the world due to my... It's. A fluke of my luck that I have had a British passport and so I could travel. So the only added benefit, you know, was for me, travel was very important and I was traveling back and forth. So I had the flexibility and there wasn't really a strong feel that I needed to dig roots in the US or taking off breaking connections with Egypt, for example. So I didn't feel that strongly about it. This is episode 12, an interview with Amr El Abadi, professor of computer science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, an immigrant from Egypt. Uh, so now we come to the last segment of our conversation, retrospective and perspective. Uh, I want to start by asking about, um, and I think you, you have touched on some of this, uh, uh, but I want to ask if there are any other, if there are any role models, mentors, or really awesome teachers you have had. I think you mentioned a few. Are there any that you didn't get to mention? In high school, I had some influential uh, professors. In uh, in university, I had uh, obviously, and then at Cornell also. So uh, my parents did have a strong influence on me, whether it's my father or my mother. I think uh, we have a very 
open environment. I grew up in a very open environment. I have uh, also very strong women in my family who had, who showed me just diver, just how important it is that everybody was had an equal voice. My grandmother. On both, my grandmothers on both sides, but I was thinking of my Egyptian grandmother. She was an open-minded person. We met with her. We respected her. She had an opinion that had an influence on all of us. Uh, my, she was not veiled, and that was early on. And I'm talking about an Egyptian, Muslim Egyptian woman. Uh, actually, if you look at my high school, we were talking about women in the university, my undergraduate. Most of the women at the time, my colleagues were not veiled, unlike now. So there was, so I think that environment was very healthy and uh, fulfilling. Slightly different question. Uh, as computer scientists, uh, we have to handle quite a bit of failures, things that we cared about, but that failed. Uh, and of course, rejections are a way of life. Uh, what advice do you have for our listeners who um, to handle failures and rejections in their career? We face it, like you're saying, all the time. Uh, however, when I, I try to at least find a, a positive aspect in the ideas that have been rejected and maybe modify them. So you can take an idea and maybe it's not that exciting in the current application but i find another environment or another setting where it would be more appealing so often problems in distributed systems are applied typically to networks or large scale uh, cloud computing or whatever but there's also applications for them in social media and so sometimes an idea that might be useful in one environment but isn't accepted or isn't appreciated one can by thinking and trying to explore it might be able to apply it in another environment i always hope that if there is a good idea it will eventually see the light of day mm. and you kind of cannot predict later on how it will be used in ways that you wouldn't expect i've done things where I was applying it in a specific context, counting, for example, and it turns out that now people are using it in networks a lot. Sort of relatedly, but slightly different, I want to ask about advice that you have for people who um, suffer from imposter syndrome. This is a pretty common facet of, of academic life and also entrepreneurial life where sometimes we feel like, oh, you know, I don't kind of belong here, even though I've accomplished a little bit or maybe a lot, I kind of don't belong here and I'm really an imposter. What advice do you have? Just think about the others who are claiming they belong here. They are probably more imposters <laughs> than you are. I've seen so many confident people just shout in your face about something about what they really believe in and how they are so confident about it. But if you dig deeper, they are not that knowledgeable and it is just a facade. So I am not, I shouldn't feel I'm an imposter because people who are overconfident are typically imposters themselves in, a, in the opposite way. <laughs> That's a great perspective. So Egypt has gone through quite a bit of change in just the last 10 years or so since the 20, 2011 street revolution, Arab revolution. 
Uh, how have your thoughts about Egypt changed uh, in just the last 10, 15 years? So the 2011 revolution gave a lot of hope. I have to say that before it, there was a feeling that things cannot change. Mm. We had a President Mubarak who was there for 30 years and there was just a sense of stagnation. Mm. So what what the Egyptian revolution did is, in a way, even though it failed eventually, is that it shows that even if 20, 30 years pass, there is people still believe in something and cannot remain being suppressed or just not involved, not engaged forever. Things will change. So that's the the glimmer of hope that I see. I'm very engaged. I feel strongly about the need for change in Egypt. Uh, it just is going to happen eventually. It needs maturity. It needs different circumstances, uh, different pressures, regional, local, etc. So there is still hope. There is hope. It might be a while. We might have to wait, but uh, there is hope. Yes, yes. Uh, Egypt is an old country also. It has it has a lot of heritage. It has a lot of intellectual material. I mean, all you have to do is read the current books that are coming out, the novels and stuff. I keep track of this and I enjoy the books. There are thoughts in it. This means that people are thinking and there will be. And the students who are coming out are still excellent students, mm-hmm. the ones. And so, I yes, there is definitely hope. So I want to ask a couple more questions to end our interview. The next question is a little bit speculative, but I'm going to ask you because you have have spent quite a bit of time in the U.S. at this point. You've kind of seen the U.S. um, university system, of course. You've also kind of seen the U.S. high schooling system. So the question is speculative and it goes something like this. Imagining if you hadn't grown up um, in Egypt, but you had grown up in the U.S. or maybe Europe, do you think your interests or your career or your life may have been different, all else being equal? If I grew up in the same family, sure, yeah, I think it wouldn't have changed much. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I wouldn't be a computer scientist, but I would definitely see myself as an academic. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's not only research that I enjoy, I enjoy teaching. So it's the mentoring of undergraduates in class, the mentoring of the PhD students, the one-on-one interactions, that stimulates me. The outcome is good, but what's more important for me is that I see and I'm part of this process. Mm. And that I don't think, I if I grew up in similar, in a different country, but in the same environment, I don't think that would have changed. Mm. That's very beautifully put. I think that the day-to-day interactions that uh, we faculty have with our students we don't often consciously think about it, but that is really one of the most enjoyable parts of our profession. That I agree completely with, yes. And this was one of the problems with the pandemic is everything became kind of detached a little bit. Yeah. We're getting back. 
Um, last question, a little bit open-ended. Uh, was there anything else that uh, you wanted to talk about which we didn't cover? I, I actually, you remind me now of another story about Ithaca being small. Yes. So I met some friends, uh, some friends of mine had visitors from Minnesota and we were cooking dinner and uh, we were going to have eggplants and they had no idea what eggplants were. And I was like, where do these people live? What is Minnesota like? No eggplants? They don't, I mean, for me, eggplants is like one of our regular foods. <laughs> Thank you, Amr, for joining us on the Immigrant Computer Scientist Podcast and for sharing your story and your journey and your thoughts with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it too. This was episode 12 of the Immigrant Computer Scientist Podcast. You've heard the immigration story of Amr El Abadi, immigrant from Egypt and now professor of computer science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a luminary in the field of databases and distributed systems. If you haven't already done so, please listen to the lead episode of this Middle East segment, that's episode 9, featuring two entrepreneurial narrators from Iran and Lebanon. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes where we visit other parts of the world. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast. <laughs>